Well, let me begin with a question. Have you ever come into a situation or a variety of situations where the love and faithfulness of God, which you are very much aware of, and reality, which you are very much aware of, are in tremendous conflict? God's love, his plan for you, and reality, there just seems to be a huge gap of what's going on. Sometimes that conflict is not small. Sometimes that conflict is very, very deep. Uh, perhaps your faith was on the mountaintop, and then something happened, and suddenly you went very quickly from the mountaintop of faith to the valley of unbelief, the valley of despair. Uh, would you be surprised to learn that that has happened to some of the greatest people in the history of our faith? You see, a big part of faith is trusting, is obeying God and trusting him with the results. So you do the right thing, and then you trust that God is going to take care of it. It also, a big part of faith is believing that God can do what he says, that God can do what he promises. All over scripture, we're asked this question, is anything too hard for God? And people of faith, I can see your head already going, no, 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 no. But when things fall apart, that's challenged, isn't it? When things start to go bad, that's when our theology can be tremendously challenged. But there's another thing about faith I think is very, very important. Faith is also believing that the promises and power of God are bigger than the most overwhelming of our circumstances. Let me say that again, that, the, that the, the promises and power of God are bigger than the most overwhelming of our circumstances. The challenge is what? To remember it and then to apply it and believe it. So the title of our message today is When Circumstances Overwhelm Our Faith. When circumstances overwhelm our faith, again, part of our series, Venturing into the Unknown. So we are walking uh, with Abraham here in Genesis chapter 12, over 4,000 years ago, and he heard the call from God, actually began in chapter 11, but we'll pick it up in chapter 12, uh, into the unknown. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 9. Let's, let's just review them quickly. Uh, verse 1, the Lord said to him, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And jump down to verse 4. So Abram departed. Abram, Abraham, same interchangeable as far as we're concerned just now. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Down to verse 6 and 7. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Does he have kids? No, he has none. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So he's worshiping God for his promise. Verse 8 and 9. And he moved from there to the mountain. So he's up on the mountaintop east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel uh, on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So he's still worshiping as he's going around the land. He's got nowhere to live. He's living in a tent. He's got a bunch of people with him. Verse 9, so Abram journeyed, going on still towards the south. 
So we could at least say at this point in time, it seems like everything is going as planned. It seems like everything is going according to what Abraham would think it would be, except for the one big exception is he does not have uh, a child to carry on his name. But in verse 10, it seems like the bottom drops out. In verse 10, it seems like the plan and promise of God and the care of God fails. Look what it says. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there. Why did he go there? For the famine was severe in the land. Now, it's hard to know how much time has passed between verse 9 and verse 10, but it feels very abrupt to us. Perhaps it is quickly, but perhaps that's just by design. I don't know about you, but when I was thinking about this, it feels to me like verse 7, where he says, to your descendants, which there are none, to your descendants I will give this land. It, it seems to me that the feeling could be that the promise of God is over or, or, or the land is dead. Now, I've heard stories that the New York Police Department, a lot of the policemen are saying the job is dead. I certainly hope that's not the case. I certainly not hope that's not the case for the New York City Police Department. But, you know, to be on a mountaintop, to have a, have a great moment with God, and then to all of a sudden have not a great moment with God or wondering where God is. Do you know that's very common? Do you know what even happened to Jesus? Don't you remember when we studied Matthew's gospel, if you were with us, Jesus got baptized and, and there it was. He had lived in obscurity for 30 years and heaven thunders, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You think, oh, here we go, easy street from here, it's wonderful. And then we're told, and then he was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. <laughs> You're like, the, they didn't even clean up from the party, the baptism party yet. And, and Jesus is already out into the wilderness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told that the apostle Paul is caught up into heaven. And he says, I can't even describe to you what I could say. Now, of course, people in the United States will write books years and years later that it's crystal clear to them. But Paul says, I could, I'm making fun of those books. Uh, Paul says, I couldn't even tell you in human language everything that I saw because it wouldn't make any sense. You're thinking, yes, yes, yes. And then what happens after that? He gets this debilitating, what he calls a thorn in the flesh. Like, what are you doing, God? I mean, you, you, you promise stuff or you deliver stuff. You bring us to this point. Everything is great. And then, boom. It's like getting a new car and then getting into a car accident, rear-ending somebody, right? You know, right as you just pull out of the parking lot or something like that. So here's Abram and all the people he's responsible for. Things are going well until his faith is put to the test. Now, when that happens, I think a lot of us, it's natural for us to say to ourselves, what in the world is going on here? You start to think, did I really even hear from God? Does, does, does God even really love me? I mean, really, does he really love me? Or start to think, can I really trust him? Because things that are in my life right now, there's a gap. There's a huge gap between what he says and what I'm experiencing. Now, let's just put ourselves in 
in Abraham's sandals for a minute. God promised him that he would be a great nation. Great nation. His name would carry on. He's got no kids. He's got no kids. He's told he's got to leave his family. That's, that's his security blanket. That's his, that's his comfort zone. Then his, then his father dies. And then God says, here, just go. I'll show you where to go. He has no idea where he's going. Then he gets to the place, and he finds out that it's not the commercial centers he's used to being, you know, being from. We, did, we talked about that already. And it's filled with Canaanites, vulgar idol worshipers. And he lives in a tent. Now, there's a famine. Kind of interesting if you think about it. He picks up his wife. He picks up all of the people, the, the, the crowd that's with him. We're going to see it's, it's, you've got a lot of people are with him. It's going to grow even larger today. And he moves. He, he, he goes to where he doesn't know. He trusts God with that but he doesn't trust God with the famine. I'm, I'm not putting a judge on him, but, but I do recall God saying to me, Jim, I, I think that sometimes you do better at trusting me with the big things than you do better at trusting me with the little things. And some of you might be the opposite of me. You're better with the little things, but maybe not so good with the big things. So what does he do? He goes down to Egypt. Now, practically, that makes sense. There, there's, there's probably food there. And listen, we know people, they move from one place to another for work, don't they? That's a very common thing to do. They go, oh, I got another job. I got to move out of state. We, have, we experience that a lot in New Jersey, or people come here for an internship, for usually a lot of times at the pharmaceutical companies, and then they, then they leave. They're just here with us for a short time. And, and so, and so uh, people in the military, et cetera. So people leave for various reasons. And he's probably thinking, well, there, there's food there. And on one sense, that makes sense to us. But there's more to it than this. In the scripture, Egypt is often associated with, with the ways of the world. Egypt is often associated with not trusting the Lord. Now, it's true. You could counter and you could say, well, God sent Joseph down to Egypt. He sent Jacob down to Egypt. He, he had Mary and Joseph go to Egypt with baby Jesus when Herod was killing all the little infants. But those are the exceptions, not the rule. Egypt, remember Moses taking the people out, is a place of oppression. It's a place of slavery. It's a, it's a place of discipline. It is not a place associated generally with God's blessing. Later on, the prophet Isaiah would write these words, Isaiah 31, 1, woe. Now, remember in the Bible, it's not like, whoa, you know, not the way you read your Bible, you wake up in the morning or something, lunchtime or something like that, whoa. No, woe in the Bible is, whoa, like not, whoa, this is great, like, whoa, this is bad. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And the idea is, woe to those who trust the world instead of the Lord, and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and horsemen because they are very strong. Horses were a sign of wealth. If you had horses, you were a wealthy person. But who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, 
nor seek the Lord. So what is Isaiah telling us? What is the Lord telling us through Isaiah? He's saying, avoid Egypt. Don't trust Egypt. And if you find yourself in Egypt, get out and get out quickly. Now, it's easy, I think, for us to think like Abram and Abraham in this particular situation, particularly, I think, being American Christians. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, thanks for coming. We're, we're glad that you're with us here today. But it's easy to, to, if you're an American Christian, to think like Abraham because I think in America we tend to obey God as long as things are going our way. But then a lot of people, once things start to not go their way, things change. God is teaching Abraham and all of us that he provides on his terms, not on our terms. And, and Abraham does something that we are prone to do. He takes matters into his own hands. Or another thing that we are prone to do is somebody else is being tested by God. And instead of stepping back and thinking, God, is this something you want me to get involved in because we worship at the idol of comfort and we don't want ourselves or anybody to be uncomfortable, we rush in and help people and we get right in the middle of God's discipline of their sin. You know, sometimes we do things and consequences follow. It's a natural thing. And, and, and those things need to run their course. It's like a medicine. It needs to run their course. And it's very tempting for us. If you're a parent, this is very tempting. It's very tempting to, to jump right in. Remember the term helicopter parents? Now, of course, there's drone parents. Right? <laughs> or a friend is in trouble, and we think we're going to jump right in. Here we are, Mighty Mouse. Here we are to save the day. If you don't know who Mighty Mouse is, Google them. And we're not there to save the day. God says, you're not saving the day. You're getting in the way. I'm trying to teach them a lesson. And if I don't teach them a lesson, they're going to do it again. And the next time may be worse. So as we're going on, we're going to notice something interesting about Abram in Egypt. Remember, he went to Canaan, which was a land that was not his land, full of not great people. And what was he going around the land doing? Building altars and worshiping. You know what we're going to notice he's not doing in Egypt? He's not building altars. And he's not worshiping. It seems to me that Abraham, because of crisis, because of circumstances, it seems to me that he is losing his faith. He, he doesn't seem to do believe that, that God's promises and God's power are bigger than his overwhelming circumstances. But he doesn't see it. And this is true for all of us. We, we, are, we are all blind to our blindness. We, we, we don't see what we don't see. And his lack of worship should be a heart check for him. Our, our lack of worship should be a, a heart check for us. We should, how, do, how do we view the, the thought of, of, of worshiping God? How do we view the thought of coming together with God's people to, to worship him? Is that something that's important to us? Or is it like, 
eh, whatever. Well, as we come to verse 11, we see how, how different uh, Abraham acted in Egypt versus Canaan. Again, an indicator that his faith is suffering, that he's out of the will of God, and, and that his faith has turned to fear. Verse 11, And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, she'll be, her name will be changed to Sarah, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Now, she's 65 years old. Back then, that would, be, that would be considered midlife. Not to say that people can't be beautiful at 65. Verse 12, therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say. Now, this is interesting. This is Abraham's first words in the Bible. This is it. And it's a lie. <laughs> That's like really bad. Like, I can imagine him just like when, he, when the Bible came out, all this came out. You know, we think a lot of this was recorded and written by Moses. And like, could you just change my first words? <laughs> he says, verse 12, Therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, okay, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Well, okay, so what do you think about men who would kill a guy let his wife live. Would you say that's an honest, upstanding group of men? Okay, so he's going to put her in with these guys. Verse 13, please say you are my sister. Why? That it may be well with me. <laughs> For your sake, like what a catch I am, <laughs> and that I may live because of you. Now, that is the gospel in the sense of Jesus dies for us. He, we live because of him, but that's not what's happening here. So let's give Abraham points. You ready, men? Married men, listen up. Let's give him points for telling his wife she is beautiful. Take notes. Copy his words. Um, if your wife says to you, if you tell her she's beautiful and she says, well, what do you want? <laughs> then you know you haven't been telling her enough. That's not good. But notice the problem here. Um, he says, don't say you're my wife, say you're my sister. Now, this is a half-truth. They did have the same father, but this is before God ended that, that kind of stuff. Uh, there was not that many people on the earth at the time. And it has to do, you scientists, has to do with a, a corrupted gene pool. So that. Also, Bible scholars tell us that in some cultures, a husband could also um, adopt his wife as a sister. But here's the thing. The promise, the purpose of this half-truth is to save his own neck, not to protect his wife, which makes this, on his part, deceptive and evil. Now, this is a real quandary for all of us. It's not always easy to know who you can tell everything to. That, that's just not an easy thing. I could remember growing up, my, I've told you this, some of you know this before, my mom uh, was in the hospital a lot. She had some sort of an illness where you were constantly getting uh, uh, tumors and cysts. After she, about a short time after she had me, she was unable to have any more uh, children, which my brother and sister are adopted. And so, you know, uh, they would just basically say, Mom's going into the hospital again. It was constant. Mom's going into the hospital again. 
you need to pray and you're going to go stay with your uncle or with your aunt. Um, and I'd be able to tell how serious it was by the look on my dad's face. That's how I could tell. But they didn't tell me everything because I was a little kid. I really wasn't ready for everything. And, and, it, and I get it. And then later on in life, I learned more about it. And, and so when I was older. So it's not always easy to know who's ready for the entirety of the truth and, and who you're just going to tell part of it to. And I guess I've always kind of thought of it this way, that if it is to protect someone else, then that's worth considering. But if it's just to protect yourself, that's not such a good idea. Abraham totally ignores his wife's safety. Totally ignores it. Only cares about his own safety. As well as he ignores the promise of God for a son. And he speaks in total self-interest. He's using a half-truth to conceal a lie. And, and when we do that, that will almost always be followed by ungodly behavior rationalizations, and more lies. Because you have to keep building, building, building upon the story. Now, perhaps his logic is in thinking that I can control the circumstances, but in it he seems to dismiss his faith and that God is greater than his problems. He seemed to think that God wasn't coming through, God needed his help, and he let his racing mind overtake the need to obey the Lord. Did you ever know anyone like that? When there's just a little tiny bit of pressure on them, they will say whatever it takes to get the pressure off them. They will say whatever it takes to look good to the person that they are speaking to. The result is now Abraham is totally in a place or a position that he doesn't belong saying things that he shouldn't be saying. Maybe he thought, well, listen, uh, if she's my, they think she's my sister, they'll have to, and I'm the brother, they'll have to negotiate with me um, on, on taking her as another, if somebody wants to marry her, and maybe I can control the situation. I don't know. I do know this. This way, this approach to life is a very slippery slope that we must be mindful of because what happens is, even though a lot of other people think that they're like, that guy's full of baloney, we can very easily deceive ourselves and convince ourselves this is the right way. And then notice what he does. He drags other people into it. We're going to see he's dragging other people into the lie because they want to believe it too. The Egyptians are going to want to believe it too. And that's the thing about the best of lies. The best of lies are closest enough to the truth to make it believable and to give people what they want to hear. The real danger here is Abraham is trusting himself He's trusting his self-centered reasoning and his fear is now steering the ship of his life, not his faith. 
loved ones, this is so important to understand this. this. This might get us out of a situation in the moment, but quite often it will jeopardize your future. There will often come a time, and I, I think biblically, I think of King David with Bathsheba. There will often come a time when our lies and our half-truths come back to bite us. And when they bite, they bite very hard. Verse 14, so it was when Abram came to Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended, and commended or praised her to Pharaoh. And look at this. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Just stop right there. Let, let that sink right in. Just take a look at what Pharaoh's, not Pharaoh, what Abraham's sin did to his wife. And that's really serious. All right, I'm going to go somewhere. I'm not, I'm not going to consult the Lord. I'm going to start making up lies. They're sort of half-truths. It doesn't really matter. I can get myself out of this one. What was it like when he watched them take his wife away? Oh, we're taking her to Pharaoh's house. He's looking for beautiful women. What was it like when he went to bed that night? Realizing what his lies, what his sin had done to his wife. Verse 16, he, Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake. Could be the price of a bride, I don't know. He, Abram, had acquired sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, servants female donkeys, and, cam and camels. So he's getting all this stuff from Pharaoh. Hey, man, thanks for your sister, man. Here, here, here. And on the one point, you maybe could say he's sitting there, if he's that cold-hearted, thinking, wow, this plan is actually working. That's a dangerous and deceptive place to be. When in your sin, God is blessing you materially, and, and, and you think, well, that must mean I did the right thing. That must mean God's okay with it. See, we can be so right and so terribly wrong at the same time. Things working out right does not equal faith. Things working out right, again, does not equal God's pleasure. You see, here's Abram's mistake, and this is a mistake we have to really, I mean, think about this. If you have a pen and paper, you might want to write this down or put this on your phone or, or something like that. Just remember this. His big mistake was he did not take the promises of God and his circumstances, and he did not bring his circumstances into the promises of God. He let that gap in between his panic and his fear really guide him instead of taking his circumstances and bringing it into the promises of God. Nor does he look at his circumstances in light of what God has told him, in light of what God has promised him. He doesn't see clearly. Again, he's being ruled by fear, not by faith. 
Did he belong in Egypt? Probably not. Should he lie about his wife? Definitely not. And here's my question, and it's, it's a question to me as much as it's a question to you, as much as it's a question to Abraham. Where did the man of faith from verses 1 to 9 go? Where did he go? All of a sudden, you see this guy. I mean, he's going to go in, land of the Canaanites. Oh, they hate our kind of people, Abraham. It doesn't matter. We're going to tour the land. We're going to claim it for God. We are going to build altars everywhere. I don't care if it's right down the street from one of their shrines or right next door to one of their shrines. We're going to build altars. We're going to worship. We're not going to care. Hey, Abraham, the refrigerator's empty. What was God looking for? I don't know. Perhaps he was looking for him to look at everybody and say, listen, God brought us here. We have to trust him. He didn't tell us to leave. So we have to put our trust in him. Instead of protecting his wife, he dragged her into his lie and into a terribly compromising situation. So, what happened in the process of her being taken from him to Pharaoh's house? We're spared any kind of details. Verse 17. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house, notice this, with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So the Lord has kind of just been sitting back like this. He's silent. Not saying much. And all of a sudden, he speaks with plagues. Don't mess with my girl. I'd love to say that God has never told me that about my beloved wife, but that would be lying. <laughs> I've told my own kids, you don't, talk to your, you don't talk to my wife that way. And so God shows up. And because he is going to keep his promises despite the sin of his people. So God intervenes in the midst of Abraham's faith failure as he often does. But this is the important thing. If you really want to learn the lesson of this when God kind of shows up for you and you know you've sinned and he shows up, it's not so you're going around high-fiving everybody. He's doing it to produce humility in us. He's doing it to produce trust in us. This reminds us all, I hope you're not too insulted by this, that we are a lot more like Abraham than we are, by, than we are like Jesus. Personally, that gives me great hope that it doesn't depend upon me, that it doesn't depend upon us especially as I look around at our country right now. The political scene, not very good, is it? The church scene, statistically so many people falling away from the faith. Even with all this, it's, it's interesting. People are like, why aren't they being more faithful because there, there are a lot more people are at home right now. I think it's kind of like going on vacation you know, I go on vacation. Some vacations I read a lot. Some I don't. But I always bring like four or five books. Some vacations I get like four pages read. 
No, it's when you're out of your routine. It's very easy to, to slip up on certain things. So the church is not in a great spot. Many people are falling away. Yet the call is the same. To humbly put our hope in God, trusting him with this. Not only is God bigger than the situation that we find ourselves in right now, but loved ones, remember this. Especially parents, I think, because, you know, my dad used to always say to me, I'm going to go to the happy hunting grounds and I just want to make sure you're going to be okay. God has put you in this time and this place for a reason, and he knows why. And even when we pass on, those of us with kids, God is able to take better care of them than we ever will be able to. Even though it, you think, that kid, oh my goodness, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. I once heard a pastor tell a story that one of his middle school teachers um, told him he would never amount to anything. And he became the uh, Protestant liaison to President George Bush II. So he wrote a letter to his teacher. And he said, dear Mrs. So-and-so, I remember in middle school you told me I would never amount to anything. I can't say whether you are right or wrong, but I've gone on to graduate from college, went to graduate school, so maybe things are better than you thought. P.S. Enclosed, you will find a picture of me with the President of the United States. <laughs> I am now advising him on certain things. <laughs> Thank you for how you poured into me. <laughs> so did, did Abram get away with it? Verse 18, and Pharaoh called Abram and said, yeah, man, you can feel the frustration in this dude's voice. Pharaoh talking to Abram, what is this you have done to me? Remember, they're plagues. Who knows? They're probably all walking around with skin rashes, looking all nasty and stuff. Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. You take your wife, you take all the stuff I gave you, and you get the heck out of my country. You see, so you could say, well, look at all the stuff he got, the money and, and stuff he got out of the deal. But was it really worth all the compromise that he had to do to get it? I have, I have spoken to so many people over the years who knew they turned their back on God and they still struggle to live with it. They wish they could have done things differently. Oh, many of them are Christians who know they're forgiven. They know the grace of God, yet they still carry those regrets. I've spoken to many people who made lots of money dishonestly. And honestly, if you really corner them, it eats them alive. Each dollar that came in just, just, it just wasn't as good. 
or some people who connive their way into getting something for free, but in time they realize that emotionally that conniving was very costly to them. Yet notice the grace of God, even though Abraham was not a blessing to others, God still blessed him and his family. But also notice what happened here. And if this hasn't happened to you, it probably will. God uses an unbelieving pagan to rebuke Abraham of his sin. I mean, Abraham, Father Abraham, I'm Father Abraham. This guy's like, get out of my country. I don't want you here. He rebukes him for not faithfully trusting and living for the Lord. Isn't it sad that the pagan king of Egypt, Pharaoh's morality and ethics was stronger than Abram's? Isn't it a sobering picture to Abraham of how far he had fallen? Not to mention, Abraham has misrepresented God to people and confused them more than they are already confused. You see, friends, here's the thing. Strong faith is a powerful thing to live out in front of people, but a lack of faith is too. Logical question is, why did Pharaoh just let him go? It could be that Pharaoh... As opposed to Abraham, Pharaoh had experienced the power of God when Abraham did not. I want to just take a quick look at verses uh, 1 through 4 in chapter 13. Save us a little time next week. <laughs> then Abram went out from Egypt, and he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been, at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. You know, there's lots of books written about success. Do you ever notice that? It's always a different book coming out about success. And yet the number one bestseller, the Bible, talks a lot about failure. And here the Lord shows us something very, very simple. When we fail, just do what Abraham did. Just come back to the Lord and call upon his name. Just do that. You see, our, our failure in certain, certain circumstances says a lot about our faith. But the most important thing is and what it says about our faith is, will we come back to God or will we stay away? Will we humble ourselves and come back to the Lord and talk to him about what has happened or will we ignore him? True faith comes to God in true repentance, what the scripture calls godly sorrow for our sins against God and ask God, for forgiveness. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're watching us at home or wherever you're watching us and you're not a follower of Jesus, the scripture teaches that we are saved by grace. It's nothing that we do. It's all of Jesus. It is a gift of God. 
We are saved by his grace. It's how we, we put our trust in him in response to what Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. It's how we get the forgiveness of sins. It's how we get to heaven. We often call the grace of God his unmerited favor. That's true. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's also the grace of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives daily. It's not like God saves us and then that's it. God saves us and then it's and then it, you know, you're kind of left on your own. God will help us to live for him. God will help us to obey him. You see, remember that Abram was in Ur the Chaldeans, then he was in Haran, and then he was in Canaan. It was grace that brought him to Canaan. It was grace that brought you here today. If you're a follower of Jesus, it is grace that brought you to the foot of the cross. It is grace that brought you to Jesus, who brought you to God. If you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, it is grace that today invites you to become an adopted child of God. You see, grace brought him to Canaan, but, but grace could have also kept him there. But it was the grace of God that brought him back, even though he came back hurting. True faith may fail when you are overwhelmed. So just because you fail, it doesn't mean you're not a follower of Jesus because sometimes people of faith, they fail when they're overwhelmed, but real, true, deep faith comes back. It comes back. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it takes a friend picking up a phone and saying, hey, hey, I know you once walked with the Lord. I believe with all of my heart that he wants you to come back. Would you come back? Well, I don't want to step in church again. Everybody's going to look at me funny. No, just come. Just come. Abraham came back to the altar of forgiveness. He came back to the altar of cleansing and renewal where there was an animal substitute offered for his sins picture of Jesus being offered for our sins on the cross. There nothing is said uh, by God about his sin. Nothing is said by God about his lapse of faith because the altar is the place of the forgiveness of sins and the power of God to change. The place where we see our circumstances in light of God, not judging God in light of our circumstances like unbelieving people do the place where we come to the foot of the cross and we lay down our sins and our problems at the feet of Jesus. Today we come to the altar of the Son of God, the cross of Christ, and the Lord's table. At the cross of Christ, Jesus died on the cross for telling the truth. And it seemed that all hope was lost that day. It seemed like the promise of God had failed. But Sunday came and Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin and the greatest enemy of all, death. Because of that great love and that great grace, 
We don't need to go to Egypt when things go wrong. We come to the cross and we cling to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there at the cross, faith believes. Faith trusts that the love and promises of God are, is bigger than anything even our overwhelming circumstances, and even our incredible failures. Well, let's pray.